Two Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Rupesh is back with you again. This is actually going to be my last episode before I take a couple of months break. Just going to regroup, refresh, and have a brand new lineup of guests for you. So to end off, uh, I guess, this season of, of this podcast before I head into the summer, I have a wonderful guest to talk about such an important topic that I've been curious about for a long time. Um, if I don't think it matters what part of the world you're in. I think this is completely relevant, but certainly if you're a Canadian, this is coming up more and more, and that's the state of our relationship with China and what has been happening recently. Governor, the former Governor General David Johnson releases, released a report on foreign interference. We've heard about a number of things that, uh, that you know, we're thinking China's interfering with. And so I brought in a wonderful guest. He's, the, he's Professor Gordon Holden. He's the Director Emeritus of the China Institute, the University of Alberta. Gordon, thanks so much for making time for me. I appreciate it today and look forward to this conversation that I've been thinking about for so long, reading up on. So eager to pick away at your brain here. So, well, Thank you very much, uh, Rupesh. Um, these are important topics. Um, I have one person's opinion. Mm. There are many different takes on these issues. Uh, I abandoned a long time ago any sense that I had the definitive uh, response or knowledge to any given question. Uh, but these are certainly things of importance to our country. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, we, before we before we uh, started recording here, you're talking about your time in the public service and just getting involved in that. And I want to start there, I think, just to give a little bit of context for people of who you are. So if you don't mind telling me about your journey into the public service and then eventually, I guess, your focus into into China in particular. Sure. Well, I was became fascinated with languages early on. Um, growing up in southern Alberta, it wasn't the easiest place at that time and in, mm. in 50s, 60s, um, Alberta to practice languages, but I ended up spending, even as a teenager, a lot of time in Latin America, I learned Spanish, worked as an archaeologist in in, in Peru, um, became convinced I wanted to have a life, an international life, mm. and um, joined the Foreign Service, because I spoke Spanish, they sent me to Cuba. Um, I wanted to uh, look at other systems that were similar, somewhat dysfunctional, particularly economically in the case of Cuba. They convinced the then Department of External Affairs to send me for two years to Chinese University in Hong Kong to learn Chinese. Mm. I then went up to Beijing and worked in the embassy for three years. And uh, while I had another posting off to um, then communist Poland during the Cold War, I was somewhat captured in the and fascinated by the Chinese culture, history, civilization, lots of things I like, lots of things I didn't like. I ended up uh, spending 22 of my uh, of my um, 32 years in the federal diplomatic service uh, working on Chinese affairs. I worked on Africa for a couple of years, mm. but five postings, two in Beijing, two in Hong Kong, and as head of mission in, in Taipei. And then offered a, another head of mission assignment after serving as director general for East Asia. I had the tough choice whether to take that assignment in Asia, uh, ambassador assignment, or to come to the University of Alberta to run their new China Institute. I did the latter and spent uh, 14, almost 15 years um, as director, and am now um, less than a year into my time as director emeritus, um, but with maintaining a constant 
steady interest in, in things Chinese. I have taught for the last dozen years all of the courses on China for Global Affairs Canada and continue to teach those courses to uh, our young diplomats, something I particularly enjoy, an opportunity to uh, to speak to them about China. And it means when I go to our missions or when I'm traveling in China, uh, people will come up to me and say, I took your course. <laughs> I don't remember their names because there's usually yeah. 20, 30 people in each class, uh, but they remember me. So it gives me a little bit of a connection to yeah. the ongoing um, that now a lot, quite large core of young Canadians who manage that relationship or attempt to manage it. Yeah, there's a, there's an interesting link about the places that I mean you visited. I guess depending on the time and timing of when you went to uh, Eastern Europe, but uh, I mean all those places they all have communist regimes. Is there is there a reason that you kind of went to those places, uh, or is that is is there a common thread there for you? There is a bit of a common thread though in. The Foreign Service then and still now, it's a bit of a dance between what you want to do and what they want you to do. Mm. I mean, you can't have 800 people in Paris and 600 <laughs> in London, for example, right. and nobody right. in places that are seen as less attractive. But yeah. I was always uh, fascinated by what we they still call hardship posts. Mm. Um, but I mentioned in things political. And Cuba was intensely political. Mm. Uh, an opportunity to meet Fidel Castro, uh, to meet senior... Cuban leaders, it's a pretty mm. small country, 10 million people, to travel around the country on a motorcycle as a young man, and to, but also in embassy vehicles, of course. Um, it's a beautiful island. Canadians have discovered it, but there were very few Canadians going there then. Um, Poland was a crucible in the Cold War. Mm. Um, solidarity emerged there. Um, the Soviets had neglected to do two things in Poland. They had decided it wasn't worth trying to eliminate the Catholic Church. It was decided, unlike in most of, of uh, the Soviet Empire, if I can call it that, uh, there still was land ownership by the farmers. Hmm. And they, I don't think they'd reckoned with the tenacity of Polish nationalism. So for those three things, with a Soviet overlay, uh, was extraordinary. I left in the summer of, of 1988, um, I could see the cracks in the system hmm. um, uh, quite clearly. Here's the problem. Like most observers, I thought it might take 50 years before the whole Soviet empire came crashing down. 18 months after I left, it was gone. Wow. That's been forever me a watchword um, of caution. Um, beware of the expert who thinks that they know the future course of things. Hmm. I mean, I... My first posting in Beijing, I was trying to, under, to project the future of China. Mm. The next time I went, as opposed to China, I thought, well, that's a bit too complicated. Let me just try and understand what's happening right now. Mm. And when I went back as deputy head of mission in the early part of the century, I had sort of retreated to, let me try and understand what's happened, past tense, and then I might learn from that and use it. Uh, so China is an immensely complex place. 20% um, of the world's population, long history, tremendous internal diversity, despite what people think about the uh, homogeneity of, of yeah. the country. Yeah. Uh, and so for those reasons, um, I found it particularly fascinating. And I would say, I think it was, was it Ben Johnson who said, who wrote, um, a man who's tired of, London is tired of life. 
I would submit that in this century that a, a man or woman who's tired of China is tired of life. I mean, don't, mm. I don't ask that anybody like it or dislike it mm. um, or perfectly understand it, but I don't think you can comprehend uh, humanity or this world, particularly now, given that China has an important international role without attempting to know something about China. Uh, and that's where I arrived at. It wasn't through any, I predicted the, the rise of China to be rival superpower of the United States. Mm -hmm. I knew it would recover. Um, I knew it would be important because that has been the history of the last 2,000 years. If you mm -hmm. look back 2,000 years, for the vast majority of that time, China's been the dominant yeah. Asian player. Yeah. So it's really a return to the normal, not something abnormal. China almost achieved like naval supremacy at one point, didn't they? They did. If you look back at the... Um, well, they had... It's not. It's primarily a land-based civilization mm -hmm. because it emerged in the North China Plains and in North um, Western China. Um, they didn't have an important maritime component in the way that you might say about Greece uh, or something of that order. Uh, but because it was so large, because it had a huge internal economy in particular periods, particularly in the Ming Dynasty, mm. China was building ships large enough that you could have put um, Christopher Columbus's Santa Maria and his sister ship on top on the deck. Wow. I mean, there were things I found about China I couldn't quite believe. Like you can find in Ming Dynasty a painting of a of a of a giraffe at the in Beijing at the Imperial mm -hmm. Palace. Well, lo and behold, these ships were large enough. They brought back samples when they visited the coast of Africa. Giraffes were brought back, not <laughs> a couple of them, I believe. Right. Um. Right. Uh, to not as a permanent fixture. So these were and the ships were of a, a immensity that it was only. Let me think hard here. Probably in the 18th century that um, Europe was building ships as large as China had built in the Ming Dynasty. But it's primarily not a maritime civilization. Yes, parts of southern China, Guangdong, Hainan, Fujian, were trading for centuries and centuries, and people were migrating into Southeast Asia and back. But the center of gravity of China has been, has been historically land-based, continental mm. power focused on the landmass, the massive landmass that is China. What do you think would have happened if uh, China? Because I think what I've heard is that um, at some point, some some of their naval fleets were destroyed, or they didn't invest as much into it, or something like that. Uh, I don't know if they would have achieved. Because at that time, if you achieved naval supremacy, you're pretty much you're the superpower, right? You're you're taking over large parts of the world. Um, what do you think would have been the consequence if if China would have expanded beyond its borders? Well, its borders are already huge, mm. and that um, North China Plain civilization I mentioned um, was the launching pad for both military expansion, but also just colonialization, mm. movement of northern peoples, assimilation of southern peoples. So this is a country which is almost identically the size of Canada. We pride ourselves as being number two, but right. but um, U.S. and China are virtually the same size as us, and China is much more thoroughly occupied in, in different directions, mm -hmm. not a thin fringe around the border. Mm -hmm. But your question about, it's one of those extraordinary what-ifs. If 
China had been a South China-focused civilization, mm-hmm. which had a large maritime component, which is just a reflection of the geography and the 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 landscape and the richness of the of the maritime resources. Uh, if they had kept up that extraordinary um, skill that built, I mean, the the voyages um, that had that took the Ming Dynasty fleets on these exploration trips where you're looking at 10, 12, 20,000 people on board. This mm, was an armada, wow. a massive boat. It's extraordinary. Yeah. But it wasn't wholly military. Um, and perhaps a more far-sighted, more southerly focused leadership uh, would have maintained this. But instead, in the late Ming, the, um, uh, the ships were destroyed. Much of the records were destroyed. And the... Uh, in the early Qing dynasty, which was very much a northern-based uh, dynasty, entirely a northern-based dynasty, they actually moved the population away from the coast. Mm. Um, so it, they could just do that. No, nobody's going to live on the coast for that. Didn't last forever, but it lasted into the beginning of the Qing because they were, ner- for a bunch of reasons, they were nervous about some of the remnants of the Ming that were uh, operating off the coast, and also the uh, what they called Japanese pirates, etc. But you're quite right. Uh, a systematic. Um, uh, there have been books written that, that fantasize, in my view, about voyages that Chinese ships took, which they didn't take, and I don't believe them for several reasons. One is the Chinese were a meticulous records keeper, and even the records that did survive mm-hmm. uh, demonstrate quite clearly where they went. We know where they went, and often mm-hmm. local, local uh, cultures, states record their arrival. These weren't sustained for long periods. But if they could have, with the ships they had already, colonized Australia, uh, they could have dominated militarily Southeast Asia. India is a bit complicated because it's also very large. It's mm-hmm. a large an ancient civilization that that would have been, a, um, as the British discovered, not something that you, you might conquer right. it, but could you absorb it? I doubt that. Mm-hmm. But they could have, I believe, they could have uh, conducted cross-Pacific Voyages which they did not, and they could have they could have um, settled. Again, this would have meant displacing peoples. Just happened with the Europeans arriving in Canada. They could have arrived and colonized the mm-hmm. um, uh, the western littoral of North and Central and South America. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. these are all um, uh, fantasies. If they'd moved as they did to a stand into, once you get in and start approaching the Middle East and Europe, you ran into. Um, strong civilizations and just sure. begins to play a role as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mongol and the Yuan dynasties, just even governing an area as vast as China and beyond, uh, you start running into a lot of friction involved with how do you get messages out, how do you get them back. Yeah. They overcame these to some extent, but without telegraph, telephone, modern means of communication, those far-flung empires were very difficult to administer. That's interesting. Um, you were talking about uh, your time in Cuba and just there's something about just really quickly that piqued my interest. Cuba, Canada relations. Why, why do they, why are they strong? Like why have we been able to have such great relationships with, with Cuba um, compared to other, other states? Yeah, very good point. And just an aside here, I have two dogs sleeping in this room around me, and uh, <laughs> they resist being kicked out. You, know, they, you may hear a little bit of snoring in the background. That is not me. Those are my canine I companions. Love it. 
Um, for Cuba, um, it's a fascinating case, and uh, I remain fascinated by Cuba, and I think it has some relevance even for modern kind of China relations. Mm. Um, U.S.-Cuba relation was super strong. Um, the um, U.S. military, um, Teddy Roosevelt, played a role. Um, uh, I think that Cuba might have made, obtained its independence without American help, but America basically pushed the Spanish out and, and sort of settled that. Cuba mm. had some amazing generals who fought in that war and um, did a lot of the heavy lifting. But that relationship became super strict. I've read books by um, by Cubans of that period in the 40s and 50s and 60s who defended the as Cubans the working closely with the FBI as informants, etc. There was a melding of the two mm. places to a large extent. Uh, there was also a reaction to and resistance to, and certainly Fidel would have been that. He one of his famous quotes. Um, I know America. I've lived in the belly of the monster. He lived in New York briefly, etc. Mm. Um, um, sort of a knee-jerk anti-Americanism was there. Um, we had a very feisty prime minister at the time called John Diefenbaker, who mm. um, at a time when a conservative, but someone who was very resistant to pressure from the United States, and when it came to a question of breaking trade and joining the U.S. Uh, trade led trade embargo to which almost every Latin American state acceded and Caribbean state, uh, he refused. Mm. And we maintained a trade, which was, this is fast forward through the 50s mm -hmm. uh, into the beginning of the uh, the end of the 50s with the Cuban... And he would have been uh, dealing revolution. with Eisenhower at the time too, right? That Absolutely. Time. And yeah. then Kennedy. Um, um, and uh, both maintained, I'd argue it was a bipartisan thing. Maybe not Cuba's ours, but we don't find it tolerable to have a Cuba that is opposed. And keep in mind, we're thinking Cold War, a Cold War state right on their doorstep, 90 mm -hmm. miles away off the coast of Florida. Um, this was a, a huge challenge. Uh, but um, Diefenbaker wasn't keen on that, and I don't think Pearson also following that, and certainly not uh, Pierre Trudeau. Um, the period I was there, um, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister, but then I came back to work on Caribbean and Central American affairs during that revolutionary period in Central America for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And during that time frame, um, the uh, the conservatives came into power. So I'd worked with both, but while in Cuba, it was always the liberals. And it had gone beyond, I said, we're not going to join the um, U.S. trade embargo to a, we're actually going to provide development assistance to Cuba, uh, which was controversial. Not massive amounts, but the Cubans, because they're actually very sophisticated people, uh, well-educated, uh, uh, were able to use that those funds fairly in a fairly sophisticated manner, things such as as uh, agricultural assistance in dairy, uh, those sorts of things, medical, where mm -hmm. Cuba had a strong medical system based partly on the Soviet model, mm -hmm. um, but it became eventually too too controversial. And during the time when I was working on Cuba back in 
back in Ottawa, the veils began to fall off that relationship to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's still there. Mm. Uh, we still have trade relationships. We've never, we've always had an ambassador, an unbroken period. Um, it goes back many decades, but the um, that closeness diminished under conservative governments has not really been regained to the same extent mm. um, uh, during the um, um, uh, during the the last during the century, one could say. But it's still a unique thing. When I when I hear you talk about sort of you know starting with Deef and Baker through Pierce and through Trudeau, like it sounds like sounds like examples of bold leadership, right? Like to be able to uh, stand up against, you know, the pressures of, of the United States, especially during that heightened Cold War period. Is that is that fair to say? Or I think it's fair to say. Ironically, I think it was a little bit easier. We have to keep in mind the power of the United States in that, I mean, it was the... The Cold War was a titanic struggle between two two great powers in mm-hmm. the at its height the Soviet Union controlled about a third of the world's economy through Comic Con mm-hmm. and through its various allies and satellites and its own huge um, size uh, but the United States we were making a major contribution to the Cold War in Europe we had a large troop contribution we were very much engaged in that mm-hmm. and I think there had been a grudging acceptance of uh, the Canada that this was something they weren't going to be able to break or that it wasn't worth the effort. When I was in Cuba, uh, when I first arrived there, there was no U.S. mission. Mm-hmm. Um, their U.S. interests were looked after by the Swiss. While I was there, they opened an interest section in their old, their old embassy, um, which was uh, still under the flag of Switzerland. And it used to be quite amusing if you called up the U.S. Embassy, you'd get a U.S. Marine, not in uniform, mm-hmm. answering, Embassy of Switzerland, <laughs> USA intersection. It was worth the phone call just to hear that. And uh, uh, But they, you know, obviously, well, there, I was a junior officer, but the U.S. mission were as interested in, in what we were doing. And when I was back in Ottawa, um, I would occasionally go down to Washington and various U.S. agencies, I won't name them, were mm. interested in what was happening in, in Cuba. That was quite normal for working with our ally. Um, but um, I, I quite like the Cuban people. I was not yeah. a big fan of the Communist Party of Cuba, but um, I will concede that uh, the reforms on health, mm-hmm. uh, which gave basic basic health, to, to Cubans, lengthening their life expectancy considerably, uh, universal education um, were impressive. I think if Fidel Castro had done those things mm. and retired in 1965 to his estancia or whatever, to a, uh, somewhere in Cuba, leaving power and, and handing the power to a coalition of government, of parties mm-hmm. or a mm-hmm. broad grouping of Cuban society, he would be like Jose Marti, mm. universally admired hero mm. uh, of Cuba. And it's so often in life that uh, people overstay their welcome mm-hmm. or their time frame. And that's what I think he did. And for that, for that reason, but also there was, it could be quite impressive. And at the time of the actual revolution, the period immediately after the revolution, um, there were, 
no shortage of people who are shot for their mm -hmm. opposition. My mm. problem in life, and this was you're going to see when I talk about things, I was never the perfect civil servant because I wasn't, I didn't easily arrive at a particular situation. I tended to be very much on the one hand, on the other hand kind of guy. Isn't that a true public servant in general? Like, I mean, no? Probably, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you ask me, Cuba good or bad, I can't answer that question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good, I'd say the people, and amazingly, uh, the the natural environment. Cuban food is not one of the most inspired in mm. in in Latin America. That's not one of their strengths. Mm -hmm. uh, but they got a fascinating history. Great heroes. Uh, I like a lot about it. And there's things I I don't like about the political system and its record. Uh, in Cuba, try going to try going to Cuba as a vegetarian. That was my first uh, time going to Cuba. <laughs> they do not understand what that means. I'll tell you, they just think it's vegetables. Um, so it was an interesting experience. Uh, Canada, Canada had a role in when the United States opened up diplomatic relations again with Cuba, right under the Obama administration. I heard that Canada played a role in that. Do you know anything about I believe that? We, I believe we did, but I also believe that. Because of the, and I know some of the people who served in the um, uh, U.S. diplomatic service at that time. In mm -hmm. fact, I search for his name, but the previous one of the previous consuls general to of the United States in Calgary, of all places, mm. came, uh, had worked super hard, and he was the deputy head of mission in that uh, intersection in Cuba that laid the the um, groundwork for. Uh, the establishment of relations, and I've lost track of him. But when I would go down to Calgary from Edmonton, we would um, get together for coffee or a meal and talk more about Cuba than about China mm. uh, because of his time there. So I guess I'd give, I believe that we had a role, but that the um, Americans and the, uh, and the Cubans had established pretty substantive uh, through their interest section and through movement back and forth, I think there's a lot of stuff under the radar that was happening, uh, of which this individual, our future consul general to Calgary, uh, was was part of. So I'd say the bulk of the heavy lifting was done by Americans and Cubans. Yeah. Uh, have you seen this uh, this show on Netflix called The Diplomat? I feel like I've some... Been... Have you heard about it? I've heard about it. I'm resisting watching it because yeah. I, just as a former... Diplomat. I always yeah. object to. I hate it when I sort of see something like ambassador level member of the of the um, uh, frequent purchase club, or or the, <laughs> right. the uh, uh, I've seen. I think the Japanese had a car they're selling in in Asia called the Diplomat or the mm. sort of. I can't quite bring myself to watch it. I eventually will, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I've been steering clear. What do you think of it? Well, so far, I, I've watched a few episodes. And I mean, I, I don't know how to judge it. And what I, I guess my question was going to be, I don't know if the, rec the the general public has an understanding of that world and and how you get involved in, in, in the foreign service or becoming a diplomat. And there's an air of secrecy, I think, around it, right? Uh, it seems that way. So I guess my question back to you, uh, even if you hadn't seen it, is how do you get involved in the foreign service? How do you become a diplomat? And what is that life like overall? Sure. Well, I'm, it's something I do feel passionately about. And when I was at the University of Alberta, I never... I had a rule because we were on a university campus, although we were Chinese, so it is, I think, was and is a think tank 
situated in a large university is that I would speak to any student once. Mm. So not necessarily at the exact time they stuck their head in the door, but I told the reception staff, um, someone comes in, I don't care if they're an undergraduate, um, freshman, grad student, I'll speak to them. And often they would come by with those sorts of questions. Uh, And I was also a professor of political science, and so I would um, get a feel of a lot of questions. One of the problems we have right now in our large, sprawling country is that for a variety of very technical reasons, the majority of the people who incident in federal public service come from the uh, central Canada, by mm-hmm. which I mean mm-hmm. uh, Ontario and Quebec. Mm-hmm. 90% of the internships in the government of Canada are within 100 kilometers. Mm. And those internships, as I think a lot of young folks know, are an absolutely key, not absolutely essential, but a really big assist in getting into mm-hmm. into an, an appropriate basis in the government. And there's reasons for that. The government doesn't fund adequately travel costs, living costs. Mm-hmm. If you're someone coming from Vancouver and you've been offered a, I think they're all paid now, but they don't pay much. Mm-hmm. And many of them sometimes are unpaid. But you're offered an internship in, say, health Canada, and you've got to buy the ticket yourself and uh, pay the way yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you're, you're, that, that's one of the problems. When I was mm-hmm. deputy head of mission in Beijing, we had unpaid internships, um, but I was discovering that the people we were recruiting all came from wealthy families. Mm. Who else could afford at age 22 or something like that, just still in grad school, to come and spend yeah. a year at their own expense in China? Mm. So I changed it um, to pay them what was not much more than minimum Canadian wage. But in those days, maybe not now, this was beginning of the century, um, you could afford to live in China. And suddenly I found... I thought the thought the quality got a bit better, but now we had a, more of a cross section of Canadians. Mm. I fear that after I left, that would they may have killed that program. Oh but, no! Okay. But I I feel passionately about that. Foreign policy yeah. is too important to leave to the to the capital and mm. young people from the West and from the Maritimes and Atlantic Canada, from all over, ought to be interested in that potential career. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's ways to increase your chances. Nowadays, you need uh, say a minimum of a graduate degree if you've got a uh, tough foreign language it's better French is good but not mm-hmm. essential so if you've got good Arabic Russian um, uh, Spanish um, uh, Chinese um, Japanese those are huge assets they're not absolute but still it's going to be a minority of people hired I think the year I joined there were 50 of us I think there were about 5,000 applicants so I, I say to people if you want you should ought to think you, if you want an international career think along those lines mm-hmm. and don't Fix yourself simply on uh, on the, the foreign the foreign service. There's lots of jobs, uh, business international, NGOs internationally, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever. There's lots of ways to work internationally without being in the foreign service. And if you go with that broader approach, you're not going to be fatally disappointed. I mean, the 50 out of 5,000. I'd like to think that we 50 were on average, better than, say, the 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 last 2,500. Mm. But I have no confidence, zero confidence, that we 50 were better than the next 50 or the mm-hmm. next 50. And I'm part of my proof of that, there were a couple, just a couple in that 50, that were so bad, uh, I could have taken blindfolded, take a pin and stick it in the first person in the market in Ottawa, and they would have done better. So it's a, a hiring systems are really good at hiring people, who, uh, people who are good at 
taking exams and interviews. And there's a good correlation, I think, between that and how well you do the job, but mm. it's not a perfect correlation. Mm. And so people should aspire to those jobs, but not beat themselves up um, if they don't get a particular job. Think big and more um, wide net. That That's wonderful advice, and that resonates a lot with me. I mean, I guess I, maybe I'm one of those privileged folks who studied in central Canada. I uh, did my master's of public administration at Queens. And I know a lot of the federal public service hires from, from universities, um, from, from central Canada. It's also really hard to get into the federal public service. And sometimes you're waiting on months on end before you get yeah. a call back. And, you know, what do you expect people to just sit on their, their, their hands to, to wait for things? But hopefully, hopefully maybe like, um, you know, with more remote working situations now and the union, I think, has negotiated a bit of a hybrid work sort of situation or our work at home situation. Maybe, maybe that'll improve things. I don't know. That may well improve things. And the government in general has tried, has made significant strides in, in hiring women mm-hmm. and being, making sure there's diversity. The year I joined, there were two of that 50, there were two were women. And that mm. was seen as a experiment or something mm. unusual. <laughs> right. But I'll tell you something a bit interesting as well. Um, I came from a middle-class family in Calgary. Um, back in the, when our foreign service was first starting in the 40s, 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s was minute. Mm. But even during the war years, pretty tiny in the post-war years. Um, the majority of the young hires, and there weren't many, uh, it was an old boy network. Someone mm. in the deputy would say to a few of his staff, do you know anybody? And they would all call down to Queens, yeah. and or I'll speak to my professor at McGill or Toronto, and they'll recommend uh, young bloggins I've heard is very good. Mm. Uh, he'll do, always a he, of course, <laughs> uh, will do just fine. And that was where I hired him. I got into the Foreign Service, is a bit of a small story, but thanks to the Chinese. What? Thanks to mm-hmm. the Chinese. Here's how. It sounds incredible. Um, when the European civilization first began to seriously bang into Chinese civilization, before it became decrepit and, and, and was falling apart in the mm-hmm. late 19th century, there was great admiration um, amongst European thinkers, Voltaire and others, mm-hmm. for Chinese civilization and and they came at it from an aspect of respect. Washington, George Washington, and it became the fashion in Europe and in America for a time. You may notice he has a small, in many of the portraits, a small Q at the back of his head, which is okay. what all Chinese um, had to wear, all Chinese males had to wear. So this is a bit of an invitation of China. Hmm. But also, one thing that China had that Europe had not had were top jobs in the military, the um, diplomacy, government, was on the basis of aristocracy, mm. um, hopefully with merit, but at least um, family background. Mm-hmm. The Chinese had something called competitive examinations. Mm. Now, these weren't perfect. And mm-hmm. if you were from a well-off family, you're more likely to have the resources to spend 20 years probably studying mm-hmm. to pass the exams. But these exams went right up to at the level of senior officials. Mm. And this system had been brought in, I believe, during the Tang Dynasty. So for um, for 1,500 years, they had been honing this. And, and fleets of young Chinese had been studying to pass the most basic exams with the hope of then a huge boon to their family. They could probably support their whole small village or whatever if they got to be an official. Uh, this was copied in by Europe. Um, 
mm. fittingly, because there still had to be space for those uh, offspring of aristocracy, etc. And background and class still played a role, as it does in every mm. country to some extent. But this system was eventually copied by Britain and into its colonies and mm. its commonwealth. And so, um, starting in the 1960s, I believe, there was a comprehensive foreign service examination, mm. which enabled a young kid, middle-class kid coming from Calgary, who had not studied at Queen's or U of T or McGill, to have a shot at getting into the foreign service. Mm. And those first, those years, I joined in 76, year I joined, that 50, we had somebody from Newfoundland and and folks from the prairies. We were shy on women and we were not as diverse as we ought to have been, although Canada was not as diverse then as it is now. Uh, but in any case, there was a chance for merit uh, for people who had mm. talent and interest from across the country. So thanks to the Chinese, I had a shot <laughs> at joining the Foreign Service and I wasn't uh, not coming from an aristocratic background I, or uh, having gone to the right universities, I had a shot. That's uh, that's quite the link, Gordon, that you just made. <laughs> it's a stretch. <laughs> it's a bit it of actually, a stretch, but... But, I th- it, but it's true. It's obviously yeah. not. I'm not sure everyone thinks that way, so it, it probably reflects your, your strategic thinking capabilities. Well, so. I'm not sure. It, it is truly a stretch, and I'd like to think that I could have done well. Um, uh, maybe not in the foreign service and several other things, but uh, um, it is what it is, and... Uh, uh, but I am a strong believer in um, a broad-based recruitment mm-hmm. um, to institutions, be they private or public, and that there has to be a great vigor in, in institutions to make sure they're, they're hiring the best people. And I'm not someone that says hire by quota. I mean mm-hmm. hire by talent. Mm-hmm. Just making damn sure that you're actually gauging talent and potential right. and not just some other make-it-easy um, formula. Yeah, yeah. Uh, China doesn't seem to be that place anymore, though, the way you describe that, like in terms of think people rising through based on merits. It seems like, again, this is from afar, a have no real evidence of this, but it seems like if you want to get involved in, you know, the Communist Party of China, the CCP, that it's kind of who you know. But I don't know. Do you know? Do you have any sense of that? Like, is it is it still that sort of merit based like competition kind of thing or is it changed? Here you're going to come. I'm going to have to come back to my standard. On the one hand, on the other hand, right? Because a place as big as China has elements of both. Okay. They still have competitive examinations, including for positions in the civil service, and they're mm. fought over. Even the fundamental entrance exam to university, which takes place around the age of 14 or so, mm-hmm. is a, is a thing of immense uh, focus and and obsession amongst parents and young people to qualify. It makes a difference, make or break, at young, early teen years, where they're going to have a job, of, have a shot at a professional mm-hmm. job or a job where you might be working in a factory as a worker. And uh, so those exams, I think, are still accurately held. They're, they're, they're for real. Um, there's a bias, as there was in dynastic China. If you come from a family that is... Um, has more resources, can allow you to go more cram schools mm-hmm. um, and to interest you from a young age in these other things uh, that pertains. But there is an institution called the Communist Party of China, um, 90 million members, um, and there's a limit how high you can go without 
um, getting involved in that particular network. Mm. Um, that's 90 million. So that would be um, about 7 or 8% of the Chinese population. Yeah. Just back of the envelope calculation, 1.4 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a small institution. But if you join that, and that probably means um, uh, joining a communist youth league activities mm-hmm. as a young person in high school and in college, and then you're approached for recruitment, you you then become a long begin a long period of potential ascent. Xi Jinping, thirty years of uh, keeping your head down, working hard, cultivating uh, contacts, as you said, mm-hmm. Guanxi, who you know, mm-hmm. absolutely critical. Uh, but it's not without some reference to talent, because when I deal with senior Chinese officials, some of whom I met when I was there just a month ago, um, uh, they often tend to be quite well educated and pretty smart. Mm. It's a huge gene pool. Like, mm. I mean, the comparisons India, I suppose, where there's an immense amount of potential there, mm-hmm. uh, almost without limit by the size of the population. Mm. Um, Population mean being so large that there's never going to be opportunity for every smart Chinese or Indian to have a position at a, at a senior level. Yeah. But <clears throat> so it's it's a combination of who you know, what institution you're you're mobbed up with, which is in the case of China only one really, Communist Party of China. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is still a recruitment by um, by um, by exam and. The system is smart enough, and I include in that the Chinese Communist Party, to know that uh, to achieve their goals, they have to recruit talent. Mm. And they're serious about that. When they go out looking for new members, they're looking for bright, ambitious young people. Mm. And they tend to be, in, they continue to have those attributes and they tend to rise in institutions. So it's a, a very complex mix of who you know. Um, you must be associated with a party to achieve power. Um, but um, or to achieve a position of high uh, standing with with very few exceptions. Do we know if that separation that we have here in Canada between like the public service and the political arm, if that exists in China? Well, it's imperfect in this country, as you know, having mm. yeah. yourself a yeah. civil servant, yeah. but it's generally observed. And um, in China, it is absent, mm. completely absent, to the point that um, you can say that I can guarantee you that every, say, member of the foreign ministry at a senior level is a party member, and probably a great majority of the um, lower-ranking diplomats as well. Mm-hmm. Probably not every single one, but the vast majority. Mm-hmm. And to have a shot at one of those senior jobs, you're going to have to be a party member. You have to probably mm-hmm. rise within the party. Mm-hmm. The The foreign minister would normally be a member of the central committee. But there are also cases where in universities, for example, where I'd say the president of the university might not be a senior party member, probably a party member, but maybe not a senior party member. The party secretary for the university um, may not be the president. He Mm. might be the vice president. There are some extreme examples in the Cold War of the Soviet Union where I'm told that at one point, I think it was Ottawa, the driver to the ambassador was senior to the ambassador. Hmm. Um, there may have been some utility in being able to get around. I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, but um, there is no Chinese wall, to put it this way, between mm-hmm. the party uh, and the government. 
So, so Canadian public servants then would often be dealing with likely party officials then, even if they were kind of part of the part public service. Absolutely. Yeah. But they tend not to be hacks. I'll give you one example. They, um, people, unlike in our public service mm-hmm. foreign ministry, if you join their foreign ministry, probably as a translator, as a, as a third secretary, very junior position, all of the foreign ministers, almost without exception, I can't think of exceptions unless you go way back, um, the cadres begin their career in the foreign ministry and they rise and spend their whole career there. If they mm. become foreign minister, they might go off to be um, uh, state sec- state secretary um, position even higher. But in our in our government, uh, very often, well, always, the minister is a political figure that comes from mm-hmm. outside. I think Lester Pearson was a was an exception in that he became a political figure, then became the as a, it was a deputy minister, then became minister and. Uh, and then became prime minister, but that's mm. that happened once for us. Mm. Uh, for China, that's the norm. So yes, they are party people, but and there are some hacks there, I'm sure. But I th- what they're looking for is political reliability, communist party reliability, mm. but talent as well. Mm. Um, so it's not just a, a group of hacks. It's right. They know how to govern. Talented. Right. They know how to govern. Yeah. And that's why they've been able to do it. Um, with extraordinary success, whatever you mm-hmm. think of the way they do it, uh, they're able to hang on to power you know, for, um, well, the party's existed for over 100 years, and you're looking at over 70 years of, of, of the PRC. What do you think about what's happening now between Canada and China compared to, I guess, when you were more directly involved in the Foreign Service? Like, it just, it seems like a really odd time, what's happening um, there's so much mistrust now within Canadian society of of China. I'm personally have you know skepticism about certain things around China, but again, some of it's not always well informed. But yeah, what's what's different for you now, I guess, compared to before, or is this kind of typical typical relationships? I would submit that a certain measure of skepticism is always worthwhile when it comes to great powers, and China's mm. no exception. Um, um, I certainly can't believe everything they say. Mm. Um, I, um, but the period we have that really goes back to the. Let me just pick the time carefully here. I think you could say that some of the erosion of confidence or positive views of China go all the way back to Tiananmen. If you go back to 1988, I believe, Deng Xiaoping was on the. Um, cover of, of Time magazine and the mm-hmm. article about him was 100% positive or largely positive. Uh, but the opinions recovered gradually. And if you look at polling, and we did a lot of polling in the China Institute, and others have taken this over now, Nanos and other firms, it's very expensive. The positive opinions of China began to erode in the early parts of the century, sharply erode. Mm. And even by 2017, there's still prospects for a free trade agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there was negativity surfacing. <clears throat> Excuse me. When the Chinese purchased Nexon, large Canadian oil company, public reaction was net negative and became more negative. But there were some, a couple of events that really skewed things. One was the detention of the two Michaels, Meng Wanzhou mm-hmm. detained mm-hmm. on extradition 
treaty. I think you'd have to be living in a cave not to know that story mm. if you're in Canada. Mm. Um, but that sent things sharply more negative. But mm. uh, I think we're also powerfully influenced by the United States. There's a strong bipartisan... Con uh, one of the few things that Republicans <laughs> and Democrats agree with in the United States, one of the very few things. I mean, yeah. maybe not even... They might not agree on the color of the sky mm. or the sun's going to come up tomorrow, but they will agree on that China is a nasty place. And so we're also powerfully influenced by that. They have a common and enemy, right? Like, I mean, before, before it was Russia and now it's maybe China. I don't know. And China, of course, did things in this country. And we know about those now. That fills the newspapers almost mm -hmm. every day mm -hmm. uh, that should not have been tolerated, have been tolerated. And, and all of that combines. But also the stories that are carried in the media, which are generally true. Um, mistreatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. um, uh, repression of human rights lawyers, um, restraints on practice of religion, um, supervision by the state, surveillance of the media, uh, well, not just ownership of the media, but surveillance of the internet. Um, those are all true. <clears throat> the problem I have is that this is not, this is an oversimplification that I could make a movie about the United States that would be guns, ghettos, and um, environmental damage, whatever, it would all be true. And I could make a movie about the United States. Believe me, I have no skills to make a movie, mm. but well, I could conceivably make sure. a movie, yeah. which would be um, the um, Harvard University, Silicon Valley, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It would also all be true. Mm. And I'd argue that for great countries and civilizations, there's always going to be a mix of positivity and negativity. Mm. I am no fan of the Communist Party of China. I look forward to China having a more open and very different political system, although it's probably not going to be much like ours. But I can, you could make that movie that would be Xinjiang, religious oppression mm -hmm. and surveillance, or you could look at that brilliant history, mm. uh, the vibrancy of the Chinese civilization, including its its peoples mm -hmm. um, and its cities, which are um, more modern, quite frankly, the, the top tier cities than are. Uh, that are not Canadian cities in very important ways. And Chinese science and all that is very advanced. Um, the, the, the problem, I think, right now in Canada is that we have... Um, it's not that the things that are in the paper that are negative aren't true. It's that that's the only story being told. Yes. And when I was in Guangzhou a month ago, the young people... I'm always fascinated by the young people because that's the future, right? The young people in Guangzhou, which is that one of the top-tier cities... Mm -hmm. In their dress and mannerisms, um, they would fit perfectly into New York or Paris. Mm -hmm. They were dressed in the latest fashions, mm -hmm. extreme by my standards, but normal for, for mm -hmm. people in their early 20s, etc., young adults. Mm -hmm. And they were clubbing and going out to mm -hmm. restaurants and bars and mingling and, and doing all the things that young folks do uh, on their time off. And I don't get that sense mm. uh, from the... Canadian media and those fleets of Chinese university students, they're not all just being indoctrinated. They are learning a lot of things. And I, sometimes when you get to know a few of them, even within China, if they don't feel they're being monitored, um, they have quite interesting views that aren't necessarily coincide, don't necessarily coincide with the, with the um, uh, views of the party. Yeah, and that gives me hope over time that we may see a more open China. So, I'm not saying don't be eyes wide open to the reality of Chinese power, its potential for interference. Mm -hmm. um, but 
let's try and be alert as well to the sophistication uh, of that society, the fact that not everyone thinks the same way, and that while it is a potential enemy of the West, the state that is, and the PLA, um, uh, I abhor the idea of a major war, um, particularly a nuclear war, with the capacity yeah. that would have to snuff out civilizations, not just Chinese, but Western as well. What needs to happen to appreciate that other side of the story? Because I think, I think even if you do, I had a conversation with somebody who lives in Guangzhou. Um, she's a, she's an expat. She's from Canada and she started this, this group called the Global Friendship Society brings together expats living in the area. And she just told me about life in Guangzhou and how it's vibrant the way you kind of described it. And I wouldn't have had that window unless I really talked to that person, because like you said, the media doesn't really, really doesn't portray that. But what needs to happen for for us to to appreciate and see that? Because I think when we see the rise of China, we see it as a threat. But I don't know. Maybe is it a threat? But I think that's. I feel like that's the general public view. Is that yes, we know that there are these amazing cities in China. We see the technological innovation, but we don't see it as a as a as a friendly competitor. We see that as a threat. It's very different. I think. Well, I think it is a threat, and let's put it in the crude terms, it's um, it's a military threat. I mean, I was okay. head of mission in Taiwan. That's a vibrant democracy that mm -hmm. came out of authoritarian system. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's small, but we're small. There are 23 million people, we're pushing 40. Um, but in my view, they, they have the right to, as in the UN Charter, to have self-determination, etc. And uh, China, the state, and the military, with a lot of public support, actually, is determined to return it to the embrace of the motherland, the phrase was used for, for Hong Kong, mm -hmm. with probably similar results if they were allowed to have their way. Um, but uh, the world is complex, and mm -hmm. one of the things I have learned is um, you need to appreciate that, that complexity. And I have a fear of, or one of the, uh, my counterpart when I was the head of mission in Taiwan was an American, uh, Republican appointee, um, but with a very deep knowledge of Asia. Mm -hmm. And it's a time when it looked also in the uh, Chen Shui-bian was the, the DPP, the Democratic People's Party of um, of, um, of um, Taiwan. And he was the president at the time and was in the face of China. And it looked like there might be a risk of a war between the U.S. and, and China mm -hmm. over Taiwan. And he said to me, Gordon, a war between the U.S. and China, a full war, uh, would, quote, spoil the 21st century. And when I went back to Washington, um, where he was then living out of out of the government, um, I asked him about that, reminded him of that. He said, Gordon, I haven't changed my mind. And that is a bit of a watchword, mm. I think. Not that I have all-seeing wisdom on this, but having spent the first part of my career on the Cold War and the fact that it ended the way it did, that basically the Soviet Union went to sleep Mm -hmm. We're seeing the after effects of that now. We saw it in the Balkans, mm -hmm. and now we're seeing it in Ukraine mm -hmm. and Russia. Uh, so even those those great political structures don't necessarily disappear without a lot of mm. a bit like a big <coughs> a bit like a big earthquake. We'll have aftershocks. Mm. Uh, we're seeing aftershocks, but um, it didn't have to end that way. It could have ended, and it wasn't just the Cuban Missile Crisis. There were other periods uh, when there were false alarms when they. Soviets misread American signals, thought there might be an imminent attack, and just the aggressiveness of the 
some parts of the late Soviet Union, Afghanistan, other places, I, I could imagine where by accident um, there could have been a, uh, a, a nuclear war with devastating consequences. Mm. We sort of assume that that things just end and that the West um, um, comes out on top, and I do hope that is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to be alert to the, to the risk, and that does mean for the time being, and for some time, I fear, we're going to have to live with a increasingly powerful China with, with a military that if it's not, which is a solid number two, and wants to be equal to or greater than the United States, that's mm-hmm. going to be a very challenging time. And how do, do we get through, how do we tiptoe through a good chunk of this 21st century before, hopefully, we have a political system in China that more closely resembles ours and we can... And we can live with that. I mean, Kissinger and, and Nixon and Mao and Zhou Enlai made accommodations in mm-hmm. the in the late 60s and 70s so that they could get along. They had a common enemy, the Soviet Union. That was the unifying glue. Mm-hmm. Without that, it wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. And they basically agreed to sort of, or they they did basically say, we're not going to pay attention to what's happening in China. You don't pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. There's a strategic arrangement only mm. it's hard to imagine that now because we as we can we are proud to say we we live our values our foreign policies our values and that doesn't work very well when you're dealing with a uh, a big powerful country that has a totally different political system so i don't have an answer to that mm-hmm. but i know that china is moving from a small number of icbms to perhaps as high as 1000 1500 mm-hmm. and that will put them easily in a position to as the russians and the americans are positioned mm-hmm. now to destroy the world Times over. So mm-hmm. the idea that we're just going to build our strength for a war is not that simple. You need to defend ourselves, mm. but how are we going to outlast um, the government we don't like in Beijing, or how are we going to find ways to work with them? And of course, is there going to be a solution to climate change? Not mm. without China. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we going to deal with global health challenges? Mm-hmm. Not without China. Mm-hmm. So it's even well. Maintaining our defenses and being wary and protective, uh, there has to be engagement. What do you think about this this uh, approach that's coming from most Western countries of like kind of this let's isolate China kind of uh, policy or approach, right? Like let's let's deal. You know, you see with the with the the trade agreement across uh, the Pacific, right? A lot of, with with a lot of those countries, to, it's I think the idea is to kind of isolate China, right? Um, but to your point about some, taking on some of these global issues, you can't do that without China. Well, that's it, I think. And I think that remind apocryphal story, I'm told, but it may have been true, that in the 1950s, I believe, there was a story in the British headline, one of the British newspapers said, fog in the channel, Europe isolated. And of course, that's a totally UK-centric view. Mm. Um, and I've seen those arguments in Canadian foreign policy efforts in the past uh, uh, idea of isolating China. And quite frankly, given China's global reach, it is the leading trading partner for most of the world's countries, mm-hmm. um, second for us, and um, has a international profile far, far greater than ours. So who's isolating whom, one mm-hmm. could argue. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's impossible to isolate China now. Mm. They're simply too large, too connected. Um, they have a lot of friends in Latin America. They are positively viewed in places um, more positively viewed than the United States often 
in places like like Africa and the Middle East. So we're not going to be able to isolate them. I am in favor of Western coordination of policies mm -hmm. so that the major democracies can, um, rather than being picked off one by one, can stand as a group mm. for for key issues. But that's not the same thing or nearly as ambitious as, as isolation. Mm -hmm. Isolation is not going to work. Uh, they've broken out of that decisively and are dominant trading partners of uh, of Africa, La uh, much of Latin America, uh, and much of the Middle East. So it's um, uh, that that ship has sailed. Mm -hmm. So the, I'd say there's a nuance there. I'd argue Western coordination, so that we are hanging together rather than hanging separately, mm -hmm. um, uh, but not um, uh, something as ambitious as isolation won't work. How do you feel as, I guess, just as a, now taking your public service hat off, I guess, but just as a, as a Canadian, when you hear about all these different news stories, so you hear right now, the whole foreign interference thing is being discussed. We had the whole, you know, spying of, of, uh, Canadian political officials, Chinese police stations, you know, all this, all these different, you know, news pieces that are coming out on a daily basis. How are, how do you feel as just a Canadian citizen when you hear about these things? Well, obviously, concern. Yeah. Um, there are a few realities, and I'm not naive on this. I, um, I, I can't speak in detail uh, about my past. One of the last piece of paper I signed when I left the Federal Public Service in 2008 said, it was very simple, said, I, Gordon Holden, um, undertake to never reveal... Um, anything that I learned by means mm -hmm. of intelligence mm -hmm. until my death. I signed that and I said to the guy who brought this piece of paper in a locked briefcase, it says, does that mean then I'm free to speak? <laughs> and he went away, I think, worried. I'm sure he reported right. me saying, this guy is going to talk freely once he's dead. <laughs> right. Anyways, but the truth is, I'm well aware of these things. And I think intelligence operations by China and Canada pro certainly predate even 1970 established relations. At that time, China was simply competing with the Republic of China and Taiwan for the hearts and minds of the diaspora community. Mm. Uh, but they've never stopped. And I've said this before, but to me it's a bit like crabgrass. Um, you pull it up and you go back a few weeks later, it's gone, it's there again, you need to pull it up. So let's mm. not kid ourselves that it's something we're going to deal with and be finished with eternally. It just won't work that way. Um, even if we didn't have diplomatic relations with China, uh, there would be ways not as effectively to get at things directly from China and some other means. Uh, a couple of things we knew that are particular concern to me. One is the diaspora community mm -hmm. um, is the target, um, and, um, and they need to be protected. Um, we've seen that that uh, with senior ranking officials mm -hmm. are more likely to be targeted. But just in general, China has its own reasons for doing that. Sometimes it's it might be espionage, but also. They have long memories, and there's a, a fellow mm. who um, sounds a bit incredible, and I'm rambling a bit here. There's a fellow who studied in Maui, and then he went to study at the same high school as President Obama. Then he went to Hong Kong to study medicine, mm. and he was the leader of the revolution that brought down the Qing dynasty in 1911. His name was Sun Yat-sen. So... The, the Chinese have long memories of this, of the hazards of ideas and people coming from the outside, particularly who people of Chinese origin, to then foment 
potential mm. solution. A bit of a joke there, but mm. I've I've been found very few, even American diplomats who can name um, the Hawaiian institution that two presidents came from. <laughs> Anyways, there. Um, so it's not going to stop, but it needs to be contained, and we need to take a strong stand when it's detected, and we need to um, be more active. We need to communicate with Canadians what the risks are. Um, I'm not a favor of leaked documents um, because I kept safeguarded mm -hmm. for 32 years every piece of paper mm -hmm. that was shared with me and everything that I knew. Mm -hmm. um, I had to keep and still have to keep my brain in two compartments. Uh, I don't like that way. Of It, it makes our ner our allies nervous. We, we receive way more intelligence than we generate, mm -hmm. uh, mostly from the United States, but from, mm -hmm. even from others. It makes them very nervous, and I know that. We had a conversation with a Western diplomat just this week. Um, it um, uh, damages means uh, and sources. Um, if you look back at those leaks, assuming they're accurate, and I know we used to think they aren't, you look very carefully and think to yourself, where did this take place? How did this happen? Of course, the other side is going to be looking very carefully. Where did this come from? Where were mm -hmm. they? What happened when this conversation took place? How did they know this? And they'll then take countermeasures. It's not a it's not a, a proper way to do it. And it's never going to be perfect because even with, I say, a public inquiry, there's going to have to be great chunks that are held behind closed doors with information very tightly held. That's the nature of the beast. That's the way that um, governments operated and intelligence has operated for uh, several thousand years. And I don't know of any serious country that doesn't have to operate to some extent in that. In that. I mean, if it doesn't, no one will ever tell them anything. Gordon, I'm going to have to have you back because there's so much I want to talk to you about and just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, but if you, if we, if you don't mind, before we shift to the last few questions, just thinking about what's happening in Taiwan, given that you, you had some time there and it seems like there's this ratcheting up of, of military operations on both sides. It seems like it's the next thing for, for the world to really, you know, focus on potentially like at least from the general mainstream public anyways. Um, a lot of concerns around what's happening there. How does Canada navigate through that? Because, I mean, we kind of get tossed around uh, between what's happening with the U.S. And, 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 and China. And here's another situation where I feel like Canada's in a bit of a, in a predicament. But what, what is, what, how does Canada navigate through these waters right now? Well, I mean, we, I think it behooves us as a democracy to maintain contacts with Taiwan, to be supportive mm. internationally of Taiwan. Uh, but we're largely going to be um, followers. Uh, there's only one state um, capable of defending Taiwan, and even that would not be easy, and that's mm -hmm. the United States. There's still an unknowable question as our hypersonic missiles fired in great numbers from the Chinese coast capable of sinking U.S. aircraft carriers. Aircraft carrier in the United States has a complement of about 5,000 men and women. Mm -hmm. um, start losing two or three of those, um, then you're into the sort of war which I mm -hmm. really fear, the one mm -hmm. that my American counterpart feared. Well, there's things we can do in terms of economic um, cooperation, greater cooperation. The, when I was there, we were exporting, not a total trade, we were exporting more to Taiwan than we were to India. It's no longer the case, but mm -hmm. they are reasonably affluent population, um, but no one can defend them effectively except the United States. They do not have the capacity to do it themselves. And quite frankly, it's not a very militaristic society. Mm. Um, and look at the numbers. Um, 
Russia China's not, China's not a very militaristic society. Uh, Taiwan. Oh, Taiwan. Taiwan. Sorry, Taiwan. Okay, it yeah, started yeah. out that way. They had yeah. like a million, mostly military, who arrived there, a couple million yeah. from the mainland. But it's a very, the people there are friendly. They mm-hmm. are, they're, they are um, quiet and mm-hmm. thinking. And they're very admirable population, but it's mm-hmm. not a, uh, they, they value education and a comfortable life. They're not hard-edged at all. Mm-hmm. Look at the numbers. Russia, Ukraine, four to one. China, Taiwan, 60 to one. 60 mm. to 1. Now, wow. uh, mind you, crossing 120, 100 kilometers of of, of rough seas uh, against uh, opposed, uh, opposed maritime landing, one of the toughest things militarily, but not a hope without. And, and China's not about to change their mind on this. I don't think it is imminent, though. Uh, we have a very calculating, small-c conservative, in my view, um, government in, in at least when it comes to foreign policy in Beijing that doesn't like a lot of adventurism. Mm. Um, you know, where's the long list of countries they've invaded? Not really. Their policy has been much more effective. Build our strength over time, build a giant economy mm-hmm. so you can build a giant military. Uh, they haven't managed to let themselves drift into a bunch of wars. Mm. Um, and I don't think they want to drift into this one right away either. But this is a place they will fight for uh, given the opportunity where they think they can win with acceptable losses. Maybe Ukraine has given them some second thoughts. I was going to ask you about that too, yeah, the influence of what's happening in I Ukraine. Think they have given them some second thoughts. I think they've been surprised at the strength of the West's reaction, the cohesion of the West, the cohesion of NATO. Um, and even so, a, that's an actual thing, Gordon. Like when we, I mean, you hear it in the media. Like the thing that's sort of held up against, uh, like what's allowed Ukraine to really be able to fight against Russia is, you know, the support from all Western countries and that cohesiveness. Is that an actual thing? I think it is a thing. Ukrainian nationalism is not, having lived with Polish nationalism, is not something to be toyed with. It's very Mm. real. And they certainly would have fought. How well they could have sustained the fight without external support from their neighbors and from the West, I think, Mm. is is entirely entirely another question. And the game is not over, right? We have yet Mm -hmm. to see... um, how this all ends, but um, mm. hopefully it ends with a an independent um, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so, but you feel like the Western cohesiveness has definitely given China some pause on on what's I happening. I think it surprised them when I was in in um, China in late March, early April. One senior foreign policy expert said to me that who had been to this Munich um, security conference um, in um, Earlier this year, he said one of his, his main takeaways was the sad state of China-European relations. Mm. So I think that this had something been building already, but I think Ukraine accelerated that, the need for democracies to to be cohesive and to and support each other. And I think that um, uh, Europe was dismayed at China's support for Russia immediately before the war. Um, not military support, but political support, economic support. And I think this was a factor in, has been a factor in Europeans re-examining in mostly a negative direction. Now, having said that, unlike Canada, uh, the Chancellor of Germany has been to Beijing, mm-hmm. President of France, Australia is has been sending sent ministers, the mm-hmm. U.S. President met Xi Jinping in Bali, etc. Mm-hmm. So we're in a position where there's zero Canadian mm-hmm. um ministers traveling in either direction since 2018. So 
Um, mm. We're in the worst position of our allies, but the allies have also been wary, increasingly wary of China. I've heard that we should send Jean Chrétien over to China. Apparently he had good relationships with, with them. He did, but um, you, you can imagine... Uh, I stay away from political issues. You know, I have a great admiration for... Yeah. I'm a nonpartisan. I have a great admiration for our prime ministers generally and certainly uh, for him as well. Multiple um, majority governments, etc. I have no criticism of he, of he the person. But uh, no one uh, person in or out of politics is going mm. to solve the problem. The mm. bedrock issue, which you alluded to earlier, uh, Canadian public views on China are in the low double digits. Um, sort of 10, 12 percent positive views. Uh, you have to working with that will be very difficult for any government. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a bit of a cheeky comment on my side. I just started. I just wanted to see if you had a reaction to that. Um, yeah, maybe we can switch to the last two questions if you're okay with sure. that. To yep. um, there's Absolutely. again, there's so much I, I have to ask, but I, I I would love to have you again if if that's if there's ever an opportunity to do so. Sure. Um, so our last two questions that we ask every guest are five for dinner question, dead or alive. Who are five people you'd want to have supper with? Well, I was sort of thinking this might be all together. Uh, you can could, make it all together. I mean, that's it, a, could be, yeah. it would take multiple translators do okay. what they call whisper translation in diplomacy, mm. where someone sits just at the in a seat right directly behind mm. the person and whispers the translation. You're going to chuckle at these, and these are um, Qin Shi Huang, um, who lived between 259 and 210 BC, the first emperor of China, mm. uh, the person who, in effect, I mean, the, the, immediately before that, the Warring States. So that you can go back through a dozen combinations of of entities that wouldn't have called themselves Chinese that um, uh, fought long wars, big armies. Mm. Um, he's not much admired often in China because he had a reputation uh, of burying intellectuals alive and burning books. But the people who wrote those histories were people who had good reasons to be critical of him. Uh, mm. Very short dynasty, he didn't last long, but uh, he broke... Uh, the mold of endless fighting between states and created a modern China. And ever since, uh, that has been uh, the leitmotif of China is uh, unity, unity, and that helps mm. explain the Taiwan issue. Second, yeah. uh, a Roman, Marcus Aurelius, no better known, I think, in Canada, editor of Meditations, mm -hmm. 161 to 180 AD, an emperor, um, but so well-educated, he wrote mm. Meditations in Greek and uh, was a generally wise emperor, um, disastrous son, but but uh, someone who could fight wars in defense of the empire, and yet at a, a period of internal calm and, and wisdom mm -hmm. as, uh, as a leader. Mm. Uh, another military person, uh, purely military person, although he also was president, Ulysses Grant. Mm -hmm. um, why him? Mm. Well, yeah. um, Link, the combination that was necessary to end the U.S. Civil War and uproot slavery it took two people. It took Lincoln, the political visionary and president, mm. and it took Grant, who was the anvil that Lincoln pounded, the hammer, and smashed uh, the South and slavery and ended slavery forever. Racism hasn't vanished, but slavery mm. did. Mm. Um, he won critical battles in the West, uh, lifted the siege of Vicksburg. Um, Lincoln was likely to lose the 1864 election, which would have led to some kind of compromise where slavery was continued. Mm -hmm. um, the the um, liberation uh, of Atlanta 
um, or the lift of the Battle of Atlanta, these things gave the political wind and the means. Mm. No Grant, no no end, no re-election of Lincoln, and slavery would have limped on for a mm. long time. Deng Xiaoping, I had a chance to meet him on three occasions. I can guarantee it wasn't Deng Xiaoping meeting Gordon Holden. It was, Deng, it was Gordon Holden taking notes, included in meetings because <laughs> he spoke Chinese, uh, uh, but uh, someone I have great admiration for. No Democrat, a mm. Leninist, but not a Marxist, who took China mm. by the scruff of the neck, um, who turned it in a different direction by 90 degrees and marched it off and it became a rich and powerful place. Now, if you wanted China to remain weak and poor, he's not your man. Mm. But I'm struck by the fact that the, um, the, the children in rags that I used to see in poor parts of China, China had mm. the largest pool, 300 million people, uh, the UN category of absolute poor, which is then one US dollar a day in income. Uh, he smashed that. Not himself perfectly, but he just let Chinese um, flourish, let the free market flourish. Uh, a Leninist, responsible for crackdown on Tiananmen. No Democrat, mm. but an admirable human being. I'd love to ask him about the next and last Xi Jinping. Mm. He's the only Chinese president from the early 80s until 2013 that I never met. I met them all. Mm -hmm. um, always as a included in a meeting. Mm -hmm. Sure, um, yeah. But... Um, Xi Jinping, like him or not, I have some real misgivings uh, because he undid so many things that Deng did. Deng put in place a leadership transition. No one did more than two terms. You had the nominated successor, mm -hmm. um, collective leadership to a large extent, mm -hmm. where the senior ranks of the party really counted. Mm -hmm. And he tolerated factions. He even tolerated many people who had been his in, in opposition to him and allowed them to uh, main, to remain in power, maybe not that very absolute, but he, mm. there was no, there was no, there was a trial of the Gang of Four, but there was not a, uh, a trial of the 50 million people who had stood there with their red books, mm. um, uh, supporting the party. Uh, he was a wise, um, he's a wise person. Xi Jinping, much more uh, aggressive and with a very much more forward-leaning foreign policy. Mm. He makes me nervous. So there's mm. a group. I don't think it would be a very interesting with translation table, but mm -hmm. I, together, singularly, it would be magical to be able to speak them all. That's, uh, I've, I didn't, uh, I mean, the only person I knew from that, uh, that, that group was, was that, was that president Ulysses Grant. And even then I didn't really know much of his, much of his story. The only thing I feel like he had a mean mustache though. I could be wrong. He had, which? Uh, he had a mean mustache, I feel like, but, uh, he sure could, did. okay. And he, and he was, um, um, had a, Reputation for being drinking too much. Okay. And yeah. I know when this was brought, various people were jealous and bring this to Link's attention. But he can fight. Uh. And either way, he can fight and he can win. He was not yeah. a great president. He wasn't personally corrupt, but he um, was surrounded by and had a lot of corrupt people and some great scandals. But mm. he's helped save the Union. Uh, and to that, to me, um, uh, who cares? He smoked cigars uh, all his life and he... There was no pensions then, and he got throat cancer. And because of these scandals, which, and these bad investments that he invested in, lost all his money. He was poor. Mm. And how am I going to support my family? The last six months of his life, while dying of throat cancer, he sat down and wrote um, his um, autobiography of the uh, his autobiography, and it's one of the clearest written um, books written by any military person ever. Um, I highly recommend it, uh, and it helps greatly in understanding 
mm. the course of the U.S. Civil War and understanding Grant himself. Mm. The English is superb, and he wrote this while dying. He then died, and the sales were so spectacularly high that it sustained his family. So that was his last heroic gift to his family was to to get up every morning, um, um, I think probably with a whiskey to help him, and in excruciating pain mm. to write this uh, brilliant book. It doesn't take long to read. Something tells me that in order to be an effective diplomat, you got to be mindful of the history. And I've seen this now consistently in this conversation. Like you talked about how you got involved and you said, thanks, thanks to China for that. And just how you connected that historical, um, those historical developments to sort of, you know, your, your story. And, and even with all these political figures, like there's something about that, that, that seems like you're drawn to, I guess. Well, I think that's true, but thank you very much. Uh, yeah. that Rupesh, but, um, uh, again, I have opinions. Um, uh, if you put ten sinologists in a room, you're going to have ten different opinions. Mm. Um, it's uh, this is one man's opinion based on his personal life. Yeah. Uh, last question. Besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Well, I know that uh, understanding that the future is beyond beyond our grasp, uh, despite how long we may strive to achieve it. I also. I guess my last observation, which comes back to me often, how difficult it is to be original in any way. We mm. are social creatures. Um, and um, to be out of step with the people around you or with the society or your time is exceptionally difficult. Mm. And we look, we go back and we abuse ourselves at the low-hanging fruit of how primitive or wrong people's views were in the past. Uh, 50, 100 years from now, people will look back at our views and find them wrong for a whole bunch of reasons that make sense to them and make no sense to us. I try to be original in some ways, but I'm captured within my culture, my time, and my social environment. And so it's it's a it's a battle I can never win. Thank you, Gordon. I This is a fantastic conversation. Loved every minute of it. And I really hope that uh, we can connect again and, and maybe even have you on the, on the show again. Uh, there's, there is a lot to continue to dive into, uh, at least from my end. And uh, I appreciated just, you know, again, being, being in that public service uh, space myself, I can, I can see that holds so true to you. And it's always great to, to know that uh, we have, you know, ex public servants, but public servants out there who, truly kind of bleed the essence of what that role is. And I can see that embodied in you. So thank you for, for doing that. And uh, we'll put all of Gordon's information on our, in our show notes and like subscribe and do all those wonderful things. And thank you again, Gordon, for, for joining us today. Thank you, Rupesh. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Take care.